Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne. This program is produced on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. This week on Women on the Line, we hear a speech by social theorist and activist Professor Patricia Hill Collins on why intersectionality matters. This talk was recorded at the Activism at the Margins conference organized by RMIT University. Professor Collins' award-winning books include Black Feminist Thought, Knowledge, Consciousness and the Politics of Empowerment, and Black Sexual Politics, African Americans, Gender and the New Racism. In this speech, Professor Collins explores how intersectionality might inform new understandings of political solidarity within historically subordinated communities. Here's Professor Collins. Why intersectionality matters? Well, first of all, intersectionality is increasingly depicted as a narrow identity politics that creates social divisions. Now, if you look, this is what's happening in the media and this is what's happening online. Um, If you black people, or if you indigenous people, or if you aboriginal people, or if you women, if you would just let go of your narrow identity politics, even though your identity politics are um, intersectional, then you can move on to better solutions to the social problems that you face. So in other words, think about this. If you are experiencing a problem because you are a social problem of violence, Uh, So, let's be even more specific. A social problem of violence because you are a young black man and you are encountering extrajudicial police violence. And someone says to you, that has nothing to do with your being a black man. That has to do with neoliberalism. So let's just have, let's tackle neoliberalism or poverty. Let's tackle other things. And you're thinking to yourself, but... They're kicking me in my head because I'm a black man. So how am I supposed to ignore that on the path to solving this particular social problem? Part of the backlash that is occurring right now is really trying to defang intersectionality because it's a recognition of the power of an idea that has the potential to unify people across historic differences. That's a scary thing if you're in a position of privilege. You don't want those people getting together, and you definitely don't want them talking from a place of particularity of their own experiences. Still with me? Oh, yeah? Oh, did I scare you? Yes. I did. I'm sorry. Get over it. (laughs) So intersectionality offers a framework for rethinking political solidarity, and that's what I want to talk about in a bit greater detail. So let me move on to the next phrase. Rethinking political solidarity. How might intersectionality inform, first, understandings of solidarity within historically subordinated communities? And the two that I'm thinking about since I've been here are black people, because that's or black women, because that's really my area of, I think, greatest expertise and knowledge, but Aboriginal peoples. I'm here to learn. And what I'm interested in thinking about is, how does intersectionality give us a more robust understanding of our own experiences and our own struggles? 
And I can put a variety of groups in this category under that question. That to me is the question that historically subordinated groups need to be engaging. Is there hierarchy within a given community that is retarding its ability to move forward? In a minute, I'm going to argue that black feminism, uh, as advanced by black African-American women, saw a gender hierarchy within black communities that had to remain hidden or at least quiet because the racism around African-Americans was so virulent that you couldn't start talking about gender in public space until fairly recently. So the question of what does an intersectional analysis give uh, to understandings of solidarity within historically subordinated communities? It cannot be a situation where black women always subordinate their interests to those of black men in the name of unity, or whatever it is. I mean, whichever kinds of groups we're talking about. So, and the second question, has to do with political solidarity among groups with similar social justice agendas. So these are groups, not just somebody that wants to be your friend because it's, you're in, it's really chic now. Oh, it's chic to talk to Latinos because they are in. Well, next week they're out, okay, we're not talking to them anymore. I mean, historic groups that have a commitment to social justice projects. Whether those commitments come from their own histories of discrimination and oppression, or whether that commitment to social justice comes to some kind of, from some kind of commitment to a greater social justice issue. For example, environmental justice projects, critical race theory projects, feminism would be such a project, where you have to construct um, a group. You have to construct a political community around a particular set of issues. I don't know about feminism. Feminism, well, it kind of fits, it goes both ways. All right, still there? Okay, this is why I have the PowerPoint. Okay, so let me move on. Competing views of political solidarity. On the left, we have what I would call ideological solidarity. This is what most people think of as being solidarity. Basically, it's a top-down system of having a set of ideas that are in the middle of a group's identity, its projects, whatever. And basically, one chooses an ideology and adheres to its beliefs. So for example, if I were talking about class analysis, if I wanted to talk about Marxism, or if I wanted to talk about certain versions of feminism, I would say, here's the ideology of class, or here's the ideology of gender, or here's the ideology of Afrocentrism, or whatever it is, and solidarity is involved by silencing those people within the group who don't necessarily agree with that ideology. You're in solidarity with me when you agree with me. And when you don't agree with me, because I'm running things, you're not, you're not um, part of the group. And this is a particular kind of ideological solidarity that I find that I've never liked, depending on where it's coming from. Unity requires submission and uniformity. That's the view of unity, right? There is fixed hierarchy within that solidarity. This can go from one generation to the next. This kind of solidarity can, in fact, be passed on through intergenerational structures and not questioned. And it can happen within a historically subordinated group, and it can happen within a group of privilege. All those, group, those groups of, of families with white people who are afraid to speak up against racism because they will be seen as race traitors and thrown out of the tribe, that kind of thing. 
Oh boy, I'm warming up to my topic. All right. And down here, the last, the last one. Um, you get fixed hierarchy within solidarity. This is often what happens to women in groups. You know, they're always secondary within the other cause, which is racial, or young people within um, other pattern, within other uh, systems. Anyhow, but down at the bottom here, I wanted to just identify the fact that this ideological conformity or, or solidarity can occur on both the right and the left. So we can see the ideological solidarity in terms of ultranationalism or far-right politics or all of those things that are happening now where you see a certain type of group think among people on the right who just believe in leaders who don't have to prove themselves. You, you, you know what that is. But it's much harder when you're talking about activist projects to identify this notion of um, ideological solidarity as one of conformity and submission on the left. Okay? You see it more if you're one of the people who, like for example, black women, we want you in our organization, but we don't want you to say anything. We want you to just look different, right? but not be different or bring different ideas. So I call this a reductionist radicalism. This is a radicalism that basically picks one category often and says this is going to be the one we're going to stay with. Right. Now flexible solidarity, on the other hand, I see is originating in a very different place. Bottom up, it's built, it's constructed, it is not imposed. It's built from the bottom up by many people in a group or among groups who negotiate, who create something, who have a common cause or a common concern, and they may have conflict, and they may have consensus around solidarity as part of how politics should operate. Networking and coalition building are essential. Action strategies are informed by pragmatic challenges and ethical principles. So this is a solidarity that doesn't come from ideas imposed on people. It comes from ideas that emerge from what people are trying to do. This is fundamentally a solidarity that emerges from social action. It's a way of thinking about basically doing theory through action and not just in the mind, you see. It's dialogical, as I just said, it requires negotiation and compromise. It's democratic, you know, if you think about democratic not just as friendly, let's just have a chat in the town meeting, but if you think about it as negotiation, sometimes down and dirty, battling it out until you come to an agreement, because you have to. Too much is at stake if you don't. And intersectionality to me is on this particular side of it. So that's part one. Just to give you a sense of the vocabulary and the big ideas that I'm working with. Now I want to move on and talk about this flexible solidarity side and um, look at this through mapping black feminist activism. Now, you know, on the left, like, you should just know that I'm just really happy because that is black feminist thought in Portuguese that was just published in 2019. And all of my friends in uh, Brazil who have just been so supportive because they, they're thirsty for analysis that infor not informs, but that they can use pragmatically in their activist projects. So they, they really have gotten me going. But here are my questions. What possibilities exist for political action? 
How do particular social contexts shape strategic possibilities? And how might black feminism inform political solidarity? So here, this is building out a model of how to think about activism that isn't just responding to the here and now. It is simultaneously responsive to the here and now, to the where we are in terms of place, but also is embedded in a sense of time, so it knows what came before and what comes next, perhaps. This is a lived form of activism. Possibilities, there's no point in trying something that's just not gonna be possible. But what possibilities exist? I've often seen that people do not think big enough, they do not imagine big enough possibilities, you see. How do particular social contexts shape strategic possibilities? If I can convince you that resistance is futile, I've won, you see. Because I, I will not expect you to try anything. You have inserted my worldview of you as, as a subordinated person into your head. And how does black feminism teach us about this? Okay. Women's on the line. <laughs> Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> community radio stations around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We now return to Professor Patricia Hill-Collins as she discusses protest politics and the different forms of activism developed by black activists. Protest politics. This is what most of us think activism is, all right? And it is, but it's more than this, all right? Individual and or collective visible political action. We have to see the protest by the individual who just, you know, has a sit-in in front of the building or the collective nature of filling the streets or the protest of going to a meeting and saying, you bad mayor, Oops, let me just think, I'm, I can't use example, American examples. Do something about climate change. I don't know who that would be in Australia, but whoever that is, you know, go and yell at them. Protest politics. But I think there are three, at least three, other areas of political action that are activism that often aren't named as such and sometimes don't want to be named as such because to name them undermines their effectiveness. And they are institutional politics. And this would be those of you, us, who are in social institutions of any kind, having positions and roles that um, we're responsible in some way for the institution. So I call this networks of resistance within institutions. You can call it the, you know, the caucus or whatever you want to call it. And leadership, those of us who are fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to capture positions of leadership and visibility have to deal with that. Cultural politics, this is a theme that is really strong at this conference. This is ideas as the terrain of struggle. And here is where I would put the, diff the struggle over what will, who will control the narrative. Hegemonic discourse and oppositional discourse. And all the ways in which ideas matter. And don't let anybody tell you ideas don't matter because the entire industry of marketing is all about saying to us, ideas really, really matter, all right? And we want you to listen to us. And survival politics. Now this is often where women are placed. 
uh, the whole notion of the work that women do that is devalued and seen as sometimes a site of their oppression, which it can be. But I think it's this work of protecting and nurturing others and self and challenging domination by surviving violence and the threat of death is a very powerful site of activism, even though it's not called that very often. So let me just talk about each of these categories and how I would develop them through black feminism. Okay, it's not that awful yet. We're still on schedule. All right, kind of. Look it. All right, protest politics. This would be grassroots organizing, social movements. The goal is to change institutional policies and practices. That's usually what protest is. You're protesting something you do not like. You are resisting something that is new and awful or an omission of something that should have happened and you need the protection. And protest is usually done to the government, but also against corporations and against a variety of organizations. It's usually visible and it's done by people who are outside those organizations. When you protest, you don't, you don't protest yourself. You come in front of the building, you know, let's say you're on university and you get out there with a sign. My university is evil! And then you go inside and you say, and I'm going to fix it because I'm responsible for it. And you know, you're, you're either inside or outside. But that doesn't mean the next step is they're going to run things, you see. So we often have to ask ourselves, what comes from protest? Now what I have here is, um, these are signs from Black Lives Matter. Because we've had a whole lot of visual attached to this particular protest, which started small, but grew rapidly. And didn't necessarily go away, because the issue didn't go away. Captivity and slavery was black lives didn't matter. And that's still the case with black lives matter. So the whole notion of a social injustice that is not addressed is something that protest politics um, deal with. Now sometimes it's just not safe to protest. Your protest, even if you don't win, you know, in terms of there was a change, it is incredibly dangerous to protest in some places, leaving the impression that there is no resistance. But, so I think we've got a very special form of protest in terms of um, protest politics, but this is not all of activism. So a lot of young people tend to think, well, nobody's complaining anymore, so I guess activism is dead. I once asked my students, what do you think an activist is? And one of them said, somebody who just makes a whole lot of speeches. I said, oh gosh, this is really depressing. All right. But this is what got me thinking about what would be a more robust analysis of activism than what my student thought it was. He was certainly not wrong. He was just partial. The next, institutional politics. Now I'm going to say a bit more about this because... The thinking that once you're in an institution, you somehow are not an activist is what I want to challenge. I think sometimes when people are in institutions holding positions of power and authority, they are, in fact, sellouts. They are recruited because they are supposed to so-called keep the natives down or, you know, the gatekeeping function. But I think that when you look at black women in the U.S., you find a very sophisticated history of dealing with these institutions that is far from, um, oh, I just have to go to work and do what the boss says, and oh my gosh, oh me, you know, it's really something else is going on. Let me tell you a little bit about it. On the right-hand side, you see this invisible networks of resistance. 
Can you see the stapler? You're probably wondering why does she have a stapler in her talk, okay? And why does she have a dictionary in her talk? And why does she have, that's a lunch lady in her talk. You see the graphic of the lunch lady? Nice black lunch lady serving the kids lunch. Do you have lunch ladies in Australia? Do the kids eat in Australia? <laughs> Do you starve your children in Australia? What? Do they pack their own lunch? Do they have to grow it? Is it all vegan? I don't even know what's going on in Australia. I've only been here one week, so I'm just making stuff up at this point. This is what I would like to, just to tell you a little bit about my mother. My mother was an ordinary lady. She was uh, a stenographer. And this was a big job for her to get after World War II because she could read, she could do this kind of work. Because the jobs for black women before then were domestic work and field work. It was basically it, agricultural work or domestic work. So to get a job in an organization that was so-called white-collar work was definitely a step up. And her job was with the Department of Defense. Because a lot of black people had government jobs. Now, she's that classic story of the black woman who had to train the young white guys who came in who passed over her. She had to train her own bosses repeatedly and never got those jobs that they got. Now, we often hear this story as, oh, that, and that's where the story stops. Oh, this poor, those poor black women, oh, they're so downtrodden, because we assume that there's no resistance. There's nothing you can do in that situation. Well, you know, I noticed that as a child, I seem to have school supplies that other people didn't have, all right? Like, I had a staple that said, property of the U.S. government. I said, so I asked my mother, like, is property? She said, oh, we're just borrowing that. Which, of course, never returns. And then the dictionary. I'm walking to school one day with my friend. We had an assignment. I think I was in the fifth grade. I said, I looked it up in the dictionary. She said, you have a dictionary? He said, yeah, we have a dictionary. And I realized, property of the U.S. government. All right. What my mother did was what I think a lot of people do, is they use their, their positions, whatever they are, to extract whatever resources they can for their children, their families, and their communities. So it's not a... It's not a... Um, it's not a um, me, me, me kind of activism. You know, I mean, this is sort of like the narcissistic activism of serve me if not you're a racist. It's more a question of what can I do from what I have to work with for those around me. When I went to a summer program at Northwestern University, I was in high school. I was one of maybe one or two black girls in this program. And I was totally out of my element. I was in a completely white school, white community, white was everywhere. And I noticed that the people in the lunchroom were being extra special nice to me. They'd bring me a little extra treat. They'd give me a little extra this. They would say, how you doing today? How you doing today, baby? In so many ways they said, we are so proud of you that you're here doing this. Now, they were offering support in ways that I was never going to get from that institution. You see? So this whole notion of even the people you think are the lowly people who are taking orders are finding ways, and they were probably taking food and stuff home too, like my mother, you know, whatever. But they're finding ways to resist. And they have an analysis that this is socially unjust, that they're stuck doing these service jobs for people who don't even see them as people. What does that sound like? 
Down at the bottom, I have a graphic for five Negro slaves. They ran away. This is really the, sort of the graphic for allies. I, wanna, I would read the whole thing to you if I had enough time, but it is fascinating how detailed this description is. This was a little black family that ran away and planned it because they're traveling with a white guy, maybe in a carriage. I mean, these were elaborate escape thing, uh, stories and narratives. These are the narratives. How do you es escape captivity? How do you survive captivity? How do you massage captivity? Now, I say all this because these invisible networks of resistance within institutions, not outside, within them, wherever you may be located, is part of this legacy of institutional politics, visible and, in, and invisible insider activism. Now that's the invisible insider activism. The visible insider activism are black women who are in positions of leadership and authority. From one generation to the next, this is a long arc to get people into these positions. Fought and struggled for by people who took home staples for their children, that kind of thing. So when you finally get people who are in positions of authority, like this is Barbara Jordan, who was a senator, who was not a senator, a House of Representatives, who was uh, presiding over the uh, Watergate hearings. Ch uh, Shirley Chisholm down here on the, on the right, who ran for president some decades ago. And Maxine Waters, who is now still, to this day, giving a certain um, highly placed presidential official, who shall remain nameless, Hell. <laughs> All right. So you've got people who mainly the best that they may be able to do is gatekeep against things not being more horrible. And that's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Professor Patricia Hill Collins exploring how intersectionality among different groups can point towards an expansive understanding of political solidarity. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by Le Tigre. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded on www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>